while we continue in worship this morning by opening God's Word to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, this morning we're reading beginning in verse 16. Paul is now in Athens, and now we read the events that took place there, having left Berea. We now find him in Athens. I believe the the Lord has much to teach us this morning from this passage. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 16. Now while while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and for obvious reasons, the Apostle Paul is, in my humble estimation, the most relevant man for our times. Let me explain why I believe this to be the case. Many adjectives could be used to describe Paul. He was bold, courageous, truthful, steadfast, Faithful, strong, and we say amen to all of those. He was all of that, and we need all of them today. However, I believe upon closer analysis, the number one descriptor of who Paul was would have to be the one adjective that encapsulates him best would be loving. Loving. Paul loved. He loved who? God and neighbor. What are the greatest commandments? You shall love God and you shall love neighbor. Paul loved God and he loved neighbor, but he did so truly. He did so truly. And if love is the greatest of all virtues, then it is imperative, urgent, actually, that we all learn to love the way Paul did. I say it again. Paul is the most relevant man for our times, and this is because he knew what love was. If you want to make a true difference, 
in this world, you must seek to be like Paul. So, do we love God and do we love neighbor in these dark times in which we find ourselves nothing matters more than love nothing in this world matters more than love true biblical love that is why because if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So the only question left For us to ask ourselves as the church of the living God, redeemed by the blood of his Christ and sealed with his spirit is as follows. Do we love God and neighbor truly? Or are we just making a whole lot of theological noise that's just annoying? As Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Love for God And neighbor, nothing matters more. Let us see now how Paul shows us true love for God and neighbor. And here's the first thing that we learn about how Paul loved. Paul loved God, if you're following the notes. Paul loved God, therefore, he was provoked. Provoked. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was what? Provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. Paul's love for God, we learn this immediately, was not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Instead, Paul's love for God was grounded in truth, not in cheap sentimentality, and it was full of zeal. What Paul teaches us is that love for God means to be God-centered. God-centered. In other words, Paul's knowledge of God informed how he understood everything else in life. God was always at the forefront of Paul's thinking. As he himself told the, the Corinthians, he knew he was not his own. He knew he had been bought with a price. God had purchased him through the precious blood of Jesus, God's own son. Paul loved God. Therefore, get this, Paul wanted God to be honored everywhere he went. Consequently, upon arriving in Athens and seeing the massive amount of idols, he was provoked. Why? You want to know why? Because idols, idols are dishonoring to God, and Paul loved God. This is actually quite simple. Husbands, let me speak to you for a little while. This, let me give you an illustration. This is how simple this is, okay? Think about your beloved wife, husbands. If there was an untrue rumor going around concerning her that denigrated her, 
either her character or her beauty, would you be provoked? Uh, man's amen, amen, especially if she's next to you. Amen, amen. You would be provoked. Why? Is it because you're mean? No, because you love her and you want her to be honored, not maligned, not denigrated. Paul loved God. Therefore, seeing idolatry, he was provoked. Idols of any kind, anywhere, from any culture, in any shape, in any form, in whatever realm, whether physical idols or simply the idols of the heart, all of them are an affront to the only true and the only triune God. They denigrate his holy character and his perfect beauty. So as Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to come from Berea, to Athens, and as he looked at a city full of idols, he was led to righteous anger for the glory and the honor of God. It is not far-fetched to think that as Paul stood there in Athens, he remembered Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. It would have been impossible for Paul to remain at ease seeing what he was seeing. He loved God and therefore he was provoked, which means he felt deep grief and holy indignation. Holy indignation. You see, my friends, when God-loving people are confronted with idolatry, whether their own idolatry or someone else's, they too should be provoked. Righteous indignation in the sight of idolatry is the only possible outflow of a heart that loves God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Are we provoked anymore? Of the things that you see and hear, what provokes you to holy indignation? What moves you into righteous anger? You say, well, I don't see idols anymore. Hmm, idols can take so many forms. Idols can be whatever thing, person, thought, or idea that seeks to usurp the Lord's exclusive and righteous place and rightful place in our lives. All Christians, by the way, are susceptible to becoming idol worshipers. The problem with the churches in the book of Revelation was that they were beginning to lose their Christian identity due to idolatry. And that problem has not gone away. Idolatry is alive and well in our day. Here's the biggest problem with idolatry. As G.K. Beale says in his great book, we become what we worship. How many in here have read that book? Let me see your hands. Oh, you have to read this book. It is so very good. We become what we worship. Not the easiest read you will ever do, but greatly, greatly beneficial. He said in this book, idolatry is anesthetic. Anesthetic. It numbs you. He explains it like this, quote, one of the symptoms of the anesthetic of idolatry is this, listen, less sensitivity to the truth of God's word 
and more reliance on the world's perspective about how to live. In other words, when we become more concerned about the world's opinion than with God's word, idolatry is creeping in. Be very careful. Be very careful. The main symptom when idolatry is creeping in, here's the visible illustration. The main symptom is you begin to overlook this just a little more, just a little more, just a little more until the point when you don't even see it anymore. Oh, this is going to be interesting for you to hear. We're always being given messages. Idols are everywhere. Do you know who is telling us how to live today in a way that directly contradicts God's word? The state. The government. The government. I heard our very president say to transgender boys and girls, just be yourself. Just be yourself. What does the Lord Jesus say? Deny yourself. The anti-conversion therapy bill at bottom is an anti-God bill. It expresses hatred for both God and neighbor. Idols always say, embrace your sin. God always says, repent of it. Listen carefully. When people in positions of authority seek to change, alter, defy, or redefine the God-given order of things, whether that be marriage, sexuality, gender, justice, human value, etc., etc., then you know that those in power are seeking to become idols of the people because idols are always promoting sin. Brothers and sisters, I am provoked, and so should you, because I know that there are idols out there that are seeking to dethrone God and become ultimate. In view of this, let me tell you what the biggest danger for, Christian is, for Christians is today. Ironically, it is not the government itself. It is not even the evil ideologies floating around such as transgenderism, atheism, materialism, and all the other isms out there. The real danger for Christians is another idol, an idol formed in the heart and mind called self-preservation. Self-preservation. How is the idol of self-preservation like to be worshipped? Through silence. Through silence. Make no mistake. We are being told either directly or indirectly to keep our righteous provocation to ourselves. To suppress our holy indignation when we see the true God being replaced by the opinions and the wisdom of men. But love for God, 
cannot do this. We love God and we want his name to be honored as the only true God whose world this is and whose rules we must obey. He is the creator. We are the creature. Paul was provoked. Now remember the context. Remember the context. Paul was standing in the very heart of the philosophical world surrounded by the intellectual elites. We shouldn't minimize the intensity of this moment. Athens was no insignificant town. It was in many ways the pride of Greek culture. It is very likely Paul, being a citizen of Tarsus, would have been familiar with the great fame, the great reputation of Athens. He knew their pride. He knew he wasn't in Berea anymore. And yet, Paul was driven by love for the true God, not by the idol of self-preservation. How easy you think it would have been for Paul to just be quiet, seeing what he was seeing. How easy it would have been. Let's just say it together. Very easy. Very easy. And provocation, when it is holy and righteous, listen, leads to the fulfillment of the second greatest commandment. In other words, love for God must always lead to love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. Love-driven provocation leads to love-driven speech. Love for neighbor begins with words, not with silence. Paul loved God, therefore he was provoked, but Paul also loved neighbor, therefore he reasoned. That's the second point. Paul loved neighbor, therefore he reasoned. Love does not remain quiet. Remember, remember the context leading up to this moment. Paul had been stoned nearly to death, imprisoned, beaten, ridiculed, mocked, etc. Most men would have had enough by this time. Most men would have thought to themselves, I cannot take another beating. I cannot take another imprisonment. But Paul was not like most men. He was a real man. He knew real love for God and real love for neighbor. Therefore, with courage and with boldness, he threw himself into his ministry to the Gentiles. He loved, therefore he spoke. He loved, therefore he spoke. I repeat, Paul is the most relevant man for our times. Do you want to make a difference? Study Paul and imitate Paul. Now, let's see the anatomy of his reason. Where? Where did he reason? Everywhere. Everywhere. Verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he found a Jewish synagogue and once again, just like in Thessalonica and Berea, he went in. But this time, he also went into the Athenian marketplace. What was the marketplace like? One, dis- one writer described the marketplace, quote, surrounded by stately porticos and colonnades in which philosophers and poets traversed. And the sharp wit of the people was wedded by a perpetual war of words and exchange of bantering, end quote. In other words, to put it simply, the marketplace was the place where everyone could show off their way with words and argumentation. And then the writer continues, the marketplace was the heart of Athens, sending forth its vital currents 
on all sides, end quote. Basically, the marketplace was a very noisy, busy place, and there Paul stood and he spoke. Does this remind you of something? As I was reading this, it reminded me of wisdom. Wisdom. Consider the language of Proverbs in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Wisdom always desires to go public, to speak loudly, to be heard. Brothers and sisters, the word of God was not meant to remain confined to the four walls of the church. It needs to go out. It needs to go into all the world. It must go public. Wisdom is not ashamed of herself. Neither was Paul ashamed of divine wisdom. He took it with him to the public square, to the noisy street, to the marketplace of ideas. Why? Because Paul loved neighbor. Therefore, he reasoned. He spoke. He wanted to be heard. Who did Paul reason with? This is the second question. Everyone. Everyone. Notice the types of persons that Paul encountered. In verse 17, Jews Devout persons, meaning God-fearing Greeks, everyone who was in the marketplace, plus two specific groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics in verse 18. We're going to talk a little bit more about this um, next Sunday, Epicurus. Epicurus was the founder of the Epicurean group, and he was what is known as an atomist, atomist. This simply means that he believed and taught that everything in the world is basically atoms moving and colliding with each other, a very strange worldview. In short, Epicurus was a materialist. According to John Frame, he was the most explicit in trying to remove the supernatural from his entire worldview. He wanted to remove any kind of God and supernatural out of his worldview. For Epicurus, atoms were in charge of entire life. Everything was just atoms acting on each other and colliding. Everything for Epicurus was matter in motion guided only by chance. Who were the Stoics? The Stoics were founded by Zeno of Cyprus, and they were also materialist. They did not believe in the supernatural or the spiritual. For them, everything is matter. Even the soul, the inner, is matter. It's made up of light matter. And the world has a soul which basically made them or turned them into pantheists. Everything is God. Everything is God for them. For them, everything was impersonal. And this will become very important next Sunday. Everything was impersonal. There is no deity acting personally in the world. Rather, everything is moved by an impersonal force. So the Epicureans and the Stoics, unlike the society at large around them, they had no interest in those idols of Athens. They were more sophisticated than them. However, like the society around them, they too had created false gods in their own minds, gods of their own imagination, because they were in darkness, which leads us to the follow-up question. Why did Paul reason with everyone? Why did Paul reason with everyone? Here's a, a twofold answer. Here's the first part of the answer. Paul reasoned first because human wisdom leads only to darkness. Human wisdom leads only to darkness. Think about this. Athens was supposed to be the very heart of cutting-edge 
philosophical thinking. And this was true. You know who, who came from Athens? Who was born in Athens? Plato. Have you heard of Plato? Big name. Socrates. Big philosophical name. Both were philosophers of renown. They were both from Athens. Yet Athens, with all this depth of thinking and cutting edge, impressive, progressive reasoning, was the darkest place Paul had come across during his second missionary journey. Why? Because that's what human philosophy does. Apart from God making his light known through revelation, the world, brothers and sisters, is a very, very dark place. It's a dark place. That's why John, in his gospel, tells us that with the coming of Christ, what was coming into the world? Light. Light was entering into the world. Prior to the first advent of Jesus, it was mostly darkness, even Athens, the pride of Greek culture. Hence the word of Paul to the Corinthians later on when he asked rhetorically, where is the one who is wise? Meaning, where is the philosopher? And then he says this, has not God made foolish the what of the world? The wisdom of the world. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then he says categorically, the world did not know God through what? Human wisdom. Human wisdom. The proof? The proof that the world cannot know God through, wisdom, through human wisdom and philosophy? Athens. Athens. Centuries of philosophy. The biggest and the brightest names of all time spread their philosophical ideas in Athens, and yet they had no light. It was pure darkness. It was full of idols. Where did human philosophy lead the Athenians? Nowhere. Nowhere. The light had to come down, and it did in Christ. But Paul was entering a world that up until that point in human history had been in complete darkness. The only nation with light was Israel. Was Israel. For the first few thousand years of human history, Israel was the only nation with access to the light of God through what? Written revelation and the prophets. Everyone else in the world was where? In absolute darkness. The rest of the world had no source of light. They were in ignorance, which normally is spoken of as darkness. Paul then, having received the revelation of the gospel of Jesus from the Lord Jesus himself, was now a steward of heavenly light. And this light travels into the world through what? Words. Words. And so Paul started reasoning. Why? As we have said, because Paul loved his neighbor. And love for neighbor is a speaking love that seeks to address the mind and the heart in order to give freedom from darkness. Second, Paul reasoned with everyone because without revealed truth, 
without revealed truth, we wander off into dangerous novelties. Novelties. Verse 21. The people of Athens, how did they spend their time? What was their favorite thing to do? They spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The problem was this. They had no absolute firm foundation upon which to stand. They were like a boat in the middle of a raging sea without an anchor, tossed to and fro. To use Paul's language, Athens was the intersection through which every wind of doctrine and every deceitful scheme pass. And they were always confused by all of it. So what did Paul do? He reasoned. And with what did Paul reason? What did Paul reason with in Athens? Paul reasoned with the gospel of the risen Lord. Paul reasoned with the gospel of the risen Lord. At the end of verse 18, we read that the people of Athens were confused because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verses 24 through 31 will give us Paul's reasoning in more detail, which we will see next Lord's Day. For now, just consider this thought. Paul was convinced that there was only one message powerful enough to penetrate the darkness of Athens. And that message was the gospel of the risen Lord. As he himself said in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of what? The gospel, for that gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek There's only one solution to darkness, Paul said, Jesus crucified and risen. That gospel is God's wisdom. Everything else is earthly, worldly, dangerous wisdom. Paul had no plan B. All he had was one gospel, the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. Why the gospel? Why the gospel? Because the message of Christianity is about forgiveness, is about redemption, is about transformation. It's not about leaving you in your sin. It's about salvation and forgiveness and redemption. So let me ask you this. Are we convinced in our day? Are we convinced in our day that the gospel of Jesus, crucified and risen, can dispel the thickest darkness, can destroy the deepest idolatry, and can renew the darkest minds. Are we convinced? What was the answer to idolatry in the mind of Paul? The gospel. The gospel. That was it. The gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what can we say about the gospel? It is the message rooted in history that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, died on a cross for our sins under the wrath of God, that he paid your penalty and my penalty for my sin, and he has reconciled us to God through his blood. 
As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is the gospel, is the good news that Christ died to bring us to God, sinners to remove the barrier of sin and bring us to himself. But then the Bible says he rose from the dead. This is important for the Athenians, philosophers or otherwise. They knew that death came to all. I don't care how many idols you have, said Paul. None of them can offer you hope in the moment of death. Death wreaks havoc in all cultures, no matter how sophisticated they think they are. Death will come to all. But here's one, said Paul. Only one who defeated death, and he did so forever. And this man, Christ Jesus, now sits on the throne of authority, and he calls us to himself through repentance and faith. And upon that truth, we will dwell next Lord's day. Now, let's ask the question, how did Paul reason? How did Paul reason? There are three descriptions here that I want to give you. First, fearlessly. Fearlessly. Notice the reaction of the philosophers. In the middle of verse 18, it says that they call him babbler. Others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In short, Paul was mocked and misunderstood. Paul was mocked and misunderstood. Now, notice that foreign divinities is in the plural. They were accusing him of preaching foreign divinities in the plural, because when Paul spoke of Jesus and the resurrection, in Greek, it sounded like he was talking about a male god, meaning Jesus, and a female goddess, Anastasin, which is the Greek word for resurrection. The philosophers were under the impression that he was promoting yet two more gods for them to consider and add to the pantheon. After all, what's two more gods to a city full of idols? But Paul had no time for self-pity. By the way, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to be mocked? Are you willing to be misunderstood for the sake of the gospel? Do you know that there are people now in this very country that would think of you as a religious extremist just for believing that the Bible is true. If you believe this book, there are people in this country right now that would think of you as a religious extremist. Did you know that in certain circles, if you were to say that transgenderism or homosexuality is sinful, you would be labeled an extremist that needs to be silenced? Yes, that's the reality in which we're living right now, brothers and sisters. And this is what, what's leading many to abandon the faith in Christ or to reconsider their commitment to Jesus. Many are walking away from the faith because the price is becoming increasingly high for you and I to be Christians in this world. It is not easy to be labeled a bigot or hateful or an extremist. But the question is, 
Will we gladly receive whatever label is given to us for the sake of biblical truth and for the sake of love of God and love of neighbor? Paul risked being mocked and misunderstood for the sake of the gospel. So they took him to the Areopagus, which was a type of stage in which new philosophical ideas had a platform to be presented. And Paul, undeterred by the mockery and the slander, he took the opportunity. Once again, he spoke for the sake of love. Notice second, not only did he speak uh, fearlessly, but he also spoke spiritually. Spiritually. Did you notice what Paul did not do? Notice what Paul did not do. He did not come to Athens and say, tear down these idols. He didn't do that. Rather, he went right to the source of the problem. A darkened heart. A darkened heart. Paul didn't take a hammer in order to smash the material idols. He wasn't interested in doing that. What Paul did was to take the hammer of God's word in order to smash the idolatry of the heart through the proclamation of the gospel. And this is the most urgent need of man. Paul knew this. The dark culture of Athens was a reflection of the heart of the Athenians. The dark culture of Athens was a reflection of the heart of the Athenians, and that's always the case. Paul knew that the idols themselves were nothing the heart was everything. The heart was everything. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Everything is determined by the condition of the heart. And this is the biblical teaching. This is always the biblical teaching. It is actually rather simple. And, and there are many who have said this because this is the biblical teaching. Guns are not the problem. Hearts are the problem. And it's always the case. It is always the case. Everything flows out of the condition of the heart. As the heart goes, so goes life. As the hearts of the people go, so goes the culture. Therefore, Paul never let go of the gospel because only the gospel can change the heart by the power of the Spirit as he grants faith and eyes are open to the truth of Scripture. In these dark times, let us never let go of the word. We have no strength on our own, but God has all the power. And this power goes forth as his truth is proclaimed. Let us hold fast to the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Let us hold fast to the word of the Lord. And number three, number three, he spoke fearlessly, spiritually, and also authoritatively. Authoritatively. First, we see that Paul made an exclusive claim. Paul made an exclusive claim. What is that claim? There is only one true God. That was his exclusive claim. There is only one true God. If all the objects of worship that Paul saw in Athens, he called idols, then that can only mean that the unknown God of verse 23 in Paul's mind was the only true God. In essence, what Paul is saying is, all these objects of worship are false gods. They are idols. In fact, Paul explains in his letters to the Corinthians that idols are essentially demons. 
In fact, the word religious has the connotation in the original of fear of dark spiritual forces. In other words, the Athenians were superstitious, trapped under the fear of dark and the mood of the mood swings of false gods and demons. But even with all these idols, says Paul, you are missing the true God, the only one who should be worshipped. This is an exclusive claim in the middle of a polytheistic culture. Don't miss the risk that Paul was taking. He was standing up to the intellectual elites of that world and telling them that they were ignorant, that all their philosophical pursuits had been wrong. This was a major moment. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem seated on a donkey. Now the risen Jesus is entering Athens through the proclamation of his word and the power of the Spirit. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Praise God for the power, the authority of the Lord Jesus. Second, we see that Paul made a proclamation, not a suggestion. He made a proclamation not a suggestion. What did Paul say? This I suggest to you. This I proclaim to you. Paul spoke as an apostle to the Gentiles, meaning as one commissioned and sent by God to speak on his behalf to the world. So yes, Paul reasoned. Paul reasoned with them all, but he did so as one under authority. He went to Athens to proclaim a message of salvation. The gospel, in other words, is not yet another idea for you guys, Paul was saying, for you guys to consider and approve if you are satisfied. Rather, it is the only truth that explains the reasons for your very existence. As someone has said, quote, the gospel is fundamentally a call to reorient every aspect of one's life and thought to Christ as Lord, to Christ as Lord. As we will see next Lord's Day, Paul will call the Athenians to repent, to repent. This is the obedience of the faith of which Paul spoke in Romans 1 verse 5. So I ask, do we love God and do we love neighbor? What does that look like in our current world? It looks like a question, a, que a question with which we Christians are all being confronted today. What is that question? Are we being provoked in order to speak, to speak the truth? Let me put it differently. Are we willing to risk getting in trouble with the world? Are we willing to risk getting in trouble with the world by preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus out of love for neighbor? And God, are we so mesmerized by the idols of self-preservation and comfort and ease that all we want to do is to bring our offering of silence 
to it. For the people of God who have the truth of his word and the power of his gospel, silence is not an option. Paul saw idolatry, therefore he what? He spoke. Will we speak? I finish with these words, which are attributed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he fought the Nazi regime. He said this, and I quote, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. End quote. So for the sake of love, brothers and sisters, for the sake of love, let us speak the truth in love. And as we do, let us pray that God in his mercy and his power will set many, many, many people free. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this important reminder as we read the word. Help us, Lord, to understand that following you comes with a cost. And this is what we learn from the church in the book of Acts. They showed their love for the culture around them, primarily in that they spoke your gospel. And they call people, men and women, boys and girls, to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, give us true love, true love for you, a love that leads us to being a holy provocation for what we're seeing in our culture, to be zealous for our own sanctification and for the mortification of sin beginning in our own hearts, but also may this love for you lead us to love our neighbor and to love them in truth with the power of your gospel. For the gospel is the power, your power to save both Jews and Gentiles. And therefore, help us, Lord, never to be ashamed, but to love you and love others enough to speak this gospel of salvation so that those who are in darkness may be transferred into your kingdom of light. And so, above all things, help us to love our neighbor well and to be imitators of Paul as he himself imitated the Lord Jesus. And it is in his precious and strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen.